It's amazing what Photoshop will do, isn't that correct? <clears throat> Thank you to the opening team, all that were involved. Uh, I almost feel like I could stop here. As you see on the screen, the power of one, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. To me, that's the theme of the passage today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 15-29 to the end of the, of the chapter. Of Colossians, I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I should read what's on the screen. That would help. The opening that we had this morning really reflects on the second half of this particular passage. It talks about the afflictions and why Paul is so passionate about what he's doing and how he feels that he's uh, correcting things in a way that needs to be corrected. But there are two things that uh, I come out of the opening this morning with, and I just want to bring those up before we get started. One of them is that uh, Steve said that Jesus' appearance was one of just a man, and he was probably right there. But Jesus was more than a man, and that's what I'm hoping we get out of this this morning as we talk about this. I want you to look at this in terms of overall history from day one when God created the earth. I want you to think from then to today and how you're involved in that world, in that plan, in that aspect of all things. And then put yourself back into the time of Colossae, where Paul, who had never been there, sends a letter to them and tries to correct a few things that he sees. We talked a little bit about the suffering and the affliction of Christ. And that's true. But that suffering and affliction is really a waste if we do not exalt him to number one in our lives. Every time you cheat, every time you sin, every time you deviate from the line that he set, you are making him just like any other god. And you are not exalting him. And that's where man falls down. Man gets put into this world and it is man that seems to be tearing it down. Now last Sunday we heard in the introduction by Dave J uh, that this was one of the prison epistles. Uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. And I just want you to think in terms of what was going on uh, in this city at the time that he was writing this letter. And then reflect to other times throughout the Bible. And you'll see that it's not really much different from any other time. And here we're talking about Colossians, but those other books were Galatians, Philippians, uh, and Ephesians as an example. And uh, while this book is unique in its own way, um, there was a different set of problems in each of these churches. But this particular overwhelming theme, to me, is one of preeminence. We do not give God his position in our lives the way we should. Jesus alone must be the focus. Jesus is the power of one. It's not your power. It's not man's power. Go right back to the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God. Jesus was God. Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was there before the beginning. And all was well until man sinned. Not Jesus the man, man sinned. And we've been going downhill ever since. Now you'd think that this exalting Christ would be foundational to our lives. That 
we would have learned by now that He's supposed to be first in all that we do. We're told to take up the cross and follow Him. But we continue to walk on the wrong side of the road. Uh, we like the, the path that gives us satisfaction. And if it gives the Lord satisfaction, that's great. But most of the time, we do it on the basis of what do we get out of it. But that's got nothing to do with the preeminence of Christ. Matthew 6, 19-21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for there is where your treasure is. Your heart will be there also. Man is fickle and easily tempted and led astray, and we're good at that. You know, a case in point is if you just go through the Bible and you you examine each and every situation where mankind got to a point and had to turn to God. They could go no further. There was nothing they could do. God created a situation for them, put them into a situation to get them out of the trouble they were in. They got to a certain point and they said, ah, I don't know, I don't like that idea. That's really not a good idea. Think of going out of Egypt. Think of crossing the Red Sea. Think of being given the manna. They weren't happy with the manna. They wanted something more than the manna. Even in Jeremiah, for example, 9, 3 and 6, it says that the Lord speaks to them before he lays out judgment on his people. And he says, they make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. We simply don't acknowledge that Christ should be first in our life, that God should be first in our life. Now we're into the into the section here that talks about preeminence. And as David said, it's generally accepted that Epaphras was the one that started this particular church. Um, he was with Paul uh, three years previously as Paul was uh, in some other areas, and theoretically uh, it is believed that he is the one that began this church. Now, it's not a big community. About 11,000 people, were told. But the other thing that I got out of it was I realized when I looked at the map, it's only 10 miles away from Laodicea. Now, this is a church that would later be known for its casual, non-committal attitude towards Christ. Revelation 3 15 to 19 says, speaking of the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. We do things for ourselves, then for Christ. I counsel you, But from me, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes and salve that you may see. He lays it out before you, but we still don't get it. And as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Put Jesus first. And think about the Bible. How many times... Did mankind turn away from Christ? And all he said was, put me first, and I'll lead you to where you need to go. But we continue to turn away. You know, the the eating of the fruit was the first example. 
It wasn't good enough. We had everything but one thing. It wasn't good enough. We took that one thing and we've been separated ever since. When we talk about preeminence, it talks about putting that person on a pinnacle. Jesus Christ says it here. One only can succeed, reap the wealth, become clothed, have your eyes opened, exist with Christ. Okay, we talked about it here this morning. We talked about coming to know the Lord. Why we come for communion is to remember Christ. But if you only remember Christ here for an hour on Sunday morning and then you go out of the doors and you put self first, it doesn't mean anything. You've forgotten Christ's commandment to you. The word preeminence in uh, Greek is the word protuo, which means to be per- put first in rank or influence. It comes from the word protos, meaning foremost in time, order, or importance. Uh, it is therefore the idea of being first in that sense, holding the number one position in all things. Now, preeminence simply means that Christ, as the head of the church, should be held in the highest esteem in each of our lives. As we think about this exalted status, there ought to well up within us an appreciation for his position in our lives and in the world. In the priority structure of everything, he should be first at the top. He should be preeminent. And it's all because of the power of one, his power. However, not all will listen or adhere, and we've seen that throughout the Bible. We just talked about how the Lord admonished those people in uh, in, in uh, Jeremiah's time. We think of back to the... Uh, uh, back to the fruit routine. Matthew 7:21 to 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because good works aren't important. It's not about good works. It's about putting God first. If you follow God, all other things will follow. All other things will be filled in. So we'll go to the next slide, and I'm just going to talk about two or three of the different areas within the city that Paul was concerned about. Gnosticism. And there's a number of different views here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But they believe that... um, the body was evil, and good came from the form of, a, of the spirit. And uh, they also believed that, uh, in some cases, self-torture could drive away the evil from the body. Uh, it's also believed that by doing certain things, they could get to a higher level, a, a closer consciousness to God. In, in my opinion, that's what Freemasons are. Freemasons believe that they can achieve something that we can't achieve. They can get closer to God. And yet they say that it's not a religion. It's not a belief, but yet in their statement of, of faith, it says that they have to have a belief in Christ. Where is the belief in Christ if you won't follow what he says? Where is God? Where is the preeminence? The next uh, screen shows antinomianism. I hope I got that right. It's basically some, someone who says that... Um, they're justified by faith alone and they have a free moral compass to do what they want. Well, you can't have it both ways because what you want is not necessarily what God wants. 
And if you don't consult God, if you don't consult Jesus, how are you going to know what's right? If it's the law of God, then I suggest it's binding. And that's what should be followed, not what you want to do. Jesus needs to be preeminent. And then let's not forget also that there was Judaism factors going on here. And we've seen throughout the Bible, Pharisees being involved in things, Sadducees, uh, uh, the focus on tradition and ceremony, and that was becoming more and more a problem within the world at that particular time. And they thought that righteousness could be achieved through God, through these types of things, through ceremony. And that's what I said to you this morning here, by coming and spending an hour here and doing what we do for communion, that doesn't get you anywhere. It's great to do that because the Lord says, do these things in remembrance of him. But if you do it for another reason, you're wasting your time. It's simply not there. Now that's a limited picture of what Paul saw when he wrote this letter. And so it's no wonder that he wants to reset things in this particular area. So as I just want to quickly have you look at this and see some of the words that we use for God and what they mean. They all indicate a level of power above any other. Not above some gods, not above some peoples, not above some nations, not only on this word world, but, but above all others. Pardon me. Their actual language defines what God is and what their relationship to him should be. It should be preeminence. So where did they go wrong? Ephesians 1, 19-21 says that other churches also needed this reminder. So when David talked about prison epistles, the theme is overwhelmingly common throughout the books. Yes, there were different problems, but the problem was the same. Ephesians 1, 19-21 tells us that other churches had that same problem. They are in accordance with the working strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, preeminence, first, exalted, pinnacle. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, preeminence. Should he not have preeminence? Where do we go wrong? The next slide is from Philippians, and it talks of the same thing. The words might be different, but the message is the same. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Remember the sermon that Ted gave a few weeks ago about glory, about God's glory. We spoke about God's sovereignty. We spoke about God's goodness over the last few months. These things all speak of the preeminence of Christ the preeminence of God in our lives. We're supposed to put him first, above and beyond all things. The next slide is from Luke. And Jesus spoke to his disciples. These are the people that are following him every day. They hear everything he says. They see when he gets up in the morning. They see when he goes to prayer. They see when he eats, what he does. 
When we see this, could we say that whoever receives this child in Wade's name receives Wade, and whoever receives Wade receives him who sent Wade? I say no. Only because the power of Jesus could we ever proclaim this statement as even close to fact. And only if we do it in his name. It's the preeminence of Jesus. The preeminence and the power of one. And that's Jesus Christ. Not me. Not a nation. Not a country. Not a faction. Not a religious organization. Christ. And Christ alone. So here we are for the, for the few, first few verses. And you'll notice when we read these, these sound awful similar to what we read in Ephesians and in Philippians. And if you look in the other books, you'll find the same thing. It says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in the heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. That sounds like he's got the power. That sounds like we should be focusing on him. He should have preeminence. It would appear that after Paul went through the introduction, first eight or nine verses, and talked about how well they were doing and started to get into the focus on where they were going wrong, they had lost the image of the invisible God And this seems hard to fathom because Jesus had not been dead all that long. You would think it would be fresh in their minds. If we saw someone who had just gone through that, I don't think we would have forgotten it quite so soon. It's not so much that they forgot it, but they were influenced by these other factions that were in the world. You know, it says that he is the image of the invisible God. So when we speak of trusting, having faith in Jesus Christ, or following an invisible God. That's what people would say. You can't see him. There's no such thing as God. He's not there. We're not 100% inaccurate, but verse 15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Christ is that image. This statement is repeated in other writings, such as John 8:19. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And again in John, 14, in John 12, 45, when Jesus says, And he who sees me sees him who sent me. Or Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds and eyes the gods of this age have blinded, who have not yet had his light shine upon them. As Jesus says, If you have seen him, you have seen God. The eyes of gods of this age have blinded, whose minds and eyes. You know, in some ways, that could be the Gnostics. That could be the people who are leading the church. It can be you and I, because if we take a different turn, our eyes have not been opened. Not truly. Not there. And in Colossians 16 and 17, chapter 1, That is reflected. But it's also reflected in John 1, 1 and 3, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. 
Doesn't that sound a little bit similar to what we see here? Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, as God is the Word. Jesus, He was there before creation. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, and God the Father were there in creation. Can you say that? Do you know anybody who could say that? Do you have any friends? Is there a country powerful enough to say that they created earth? Or they created a certain area even within earth? I don't think so. Jesus should be preeminent. It states that he's the firstborn of creation. And many would say that Adam is the firstborn of creation since Christ existed before the creation of the Son. Uh, He is supreme over all things. He is indeed the firstborn. But he's also the firstborn of the dead. He died and rose again. But firstborn doesn't refer to creation or origin, but rather rank when it comes to the Bible. Psalm 89 speaks of David, the eighth and youngest son of Jesse. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him. I also have made him my firstborn, the highest of kings on the earth. In the case of Jesus Christ, it's not a reference to first created, but rather his eternal preeminence, his eternal position as first, to be exalted above all things. Who else can make that boast? All things were created through him and for him. He has laid it out before us. Having said that, why would the people of Colossae turn away from Jesus? Because there can be no one greater. When they came to know the Lord, they would have repented and said that. They would have repented and supposedly said in their hearts, we believe Jesus to be Lord of lords, King of kings, above all people, above all lords. There are no others. And yet they turned away. It's not new. We do it today. This world does it today. Those who chose not to come to church today, whether it's here or at another facility, chose to say that God, Jesus, is not first in their life. He is not exalted. He is not preeminent. The power that's demonstrated, though, is through Jesus Christ. Because when you look at the last year, it says that reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on this earth or things in heaven, made peace through the blood of his cross. The power of one. Blood of this cross. That is the authority with which he does this. That is the authority with which he should be preeminent in your life. Above none else. Now, having demonstrated preeminence of Christ throughout these verses, Paul changes the focus and tells the people that the church at Colossae have lost this foundational fact, that they've turned away, that they're on to a wider path that takes them a little bit over here and a little bit over there. But that's not what Christ wants for us. He tells them that through the death of Christ, they're to be able to appear before the Lord, holy, blameless, without reproach. And because of this, they are to become much as Paul has become, as Paul has thankfully become, joyful in his sufferings for the sake of his body, Christ's body. Now we talked about those afflictions, and I'm not going to get into a lot of that this morning right now. 
But we have become stewards of God's children. When you became a child of God, you became an ambassador for him. You became stewards for him. You were commanded to do certain things. Now obviously the first commandment is an acknowledgement that he is preeminent, that he needs to be exalted. You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. That sounds pretty straightforward. So if you do that, you would want to do the second commandment, which says, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor like yourself. If you respect Christ, you will respect others. All others on this world were created by him. He loves them. You should love them. The first and great commandment is to love him. Preeminence. Only if Christ is in you will the hope of glory be revealed. We talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago when Ted was up here talking about glory. To this end you will labor as Paul did. And as David said, we do not all labor at the same level. We do not all suffer at the same level. We see things differently. And that's because the Lord has given you different gifts and different abilities to fulfill his will and his purpose. Not to fulfill your will and your purpose, but what he wants for you. So you may suffer a little bit more than your neighbor, than your spouse, than your son or daughter. But it's because of the purpose that God has for you. Now who else could say that? Perhaps a father or mother could say that I have created a certain amount of suffering in my children for the purposes of our family, that you've made them go to school a little bit longer than they wanted to, that uh, they've taken a job upon themselves that is maybe a little bit above and beyond them, but you wanted them to be challenged, something along that line. But who can actually say that they have created a will and a purpose for everyone on this world? that they have directed your ways in all that you do. That doesn't mean that you can't change your mind, that you can't make some changes in what you're doing, but the focus is always on Christ. And if you do that, you are fulfilling his will. The power of one. It's not the power of a few people on earth. It's not the power of an organization. It is the power of one. So we're going to continue on with this examination of Colossians in the weeks ahead. But keep in mind, as with all of these books, and actually with every book in the Bible, the theme is focusing on Christ and Christ alone. It's his preeminence, his power of one. There we are. I'm going to close with this particular slide. Jesus says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Who else can make that statement? That is preeminence. Yes, preeminence. Dear God, our Father, we are before you as the preeminent one, 
the one who inherit in, in the one who created and sustains this universe by the word of your power. You are the one who uh, created us all and in your image, and yet we have fallen so short. But we thank you for also the not only the creation of man, but a, an eternal plan for the remedies of sin found in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to give himself for us on the cross of Calvary. And we thank you that you have shown the grace and love to us in such a way that we have responded to you. We just pray that if there's anyone here who has not found you, that they would just bow before you, acknowledge you as the, their own Lord and Savior, and live for him. And we pray as well for each one who is gathered in your presence that you would fulfill your purposes in our lives, that we would not be distracted by our own shortcomings and sin and failures, but we would be reliant on the power of your word and your spirit and yourself to draw us closer to yourself, empower us to be more like you, we pray. And we commit ourselves to you afresh in these regards, thanking you for our time together around yourself, around your throne, and in your word, and by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.